Good morning. morning. Greetings to you on this day of Reformation. It's my pleasure to bring you greetings of the students and the faculty and the staff at the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, but also to bring you a word of thanks. Um, We work really hard to graduate fine leaders in a whole lot of ways, and we know we could not do that work alone. So that your prayers and the gifts of congregations and individuals make it possible for us to train a new generation of leaders for the church. And for that, I really want to say thank you, thank you, thank God for you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, with thee counts nothing but thy grace to cover all our failing. The best life cannot win the race. Good works are unavailing. Before thee, no one glory can, and so must tremble everyone and live by thy grace only. Amen. That prayer is actually the second verse of a hymn written by Martin Luther called From Trouble Deep I Call to You. And it seemed like a fitting way to begin a sermon on this Reformation Sunday because on such an occasion, of course, one is expected to celebrate the life and works of Martin Luther. And so over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking a lot about what Luther and his insights might mean for us today. For this reason, I spent a fair amount of time scanning some of the biographies of Luther that I own and reading a number of his works, hoping to borrow a few of his inspirational words to share with us. I also skimmed again St. Paul's letter to the Romans from where Luther found his rallying cry that we are justified by faith alone. And after all of this, I, you know, it's it good to know, I was reminded and convinced again that we certainly do have a great deal to celebrate in Martin Luther and in our Lutheran heritage. And even in a way, in ourselves for being Lutheran. And then, almost as an afterthought, I took a look at today's gospel reading, and I became uncomfortable. Jesus then said to those who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you, did you catch that? No justification by faith here. Just if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth. If you continue in my word, that truth will set you free. It's one sentence, three promises, all made conditional on obeying Jesus' word. And what is that word? Well, a little later in John's gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Which, when you think about it, sounds kind of difficult to love each other like Jesus did. Sounds almost idealistic. So maybe we'll have better luck with Jesus' words in Matthew. You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek... Turn to him, the left one also. Well, that's not much easier. Maybe we ought to look at Jesus' words in Luke. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is not getting any easier. (laughs) One more gospel. Mark, let's hope. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Shoot. (laughs) Each gospel, you see, is strikingly, 
comfortably similar. To follow in Jesus' word is to love others as Jesus did perfectly and completely. When I read the gospel again, it seemed almost to belittle the biographies I'd pulled off my shelf and to mock the celebrations I had planned. Let's hear the gospel again. Jesus said then to the Lutherans who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, But but we are the theological descendants of Martin Luther, for heaven's sake, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How is it you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. There it is again, that uncomfortable feeling of getting caught, of getting caught in a lie with a friend or caught having done next to nothing to help the poor, caught cheating on our taxes or fudging the truth with our spouse or ignoring the plight of the homeless. You know, perhaps on a day-to-day basis, none of these seems like any big deal. Or maybe the task of following Jesus' command to love each other if taken seriously seems like such a big deal. We shouldn't be held accountable for it. But whatever the case when we're caught, whether it's caught betraying a trust or ignoring our duty, when it happens, our face turns red and our stomach tightens up with this feeling of shame and embarrassment. And that feeling, according to Martin Luther, that feeling is the work of the law. It makes us uncomfortable. And it holds us accountable. If you continue my words, you're truly my disciples. If you love me, you will obey my commands. It reminds me of when I was a child and I was caught, I swear, only occasionally, misbehaving. I bet you remember that feeling too. You're roughhousing the living room. You're not supposed to play there and you know that, but everything is fine. Everyone's having a good time. And all of a sudden you crash into the coffee table, upsetting the porcelain statue that was given to your parents as a wedding gift. (laughs) It crashes to the floor into a thousand pieces, and as you pick up those broken pieces, your little sister says rather ominously, what are mom and dad going to say when they get home? And then knowing the answer, she adds, boy, are you going to get it. (laughs) That's the law, according to Martin Luther. It's just like a little sister who cannot wait to tell on you. First, it sets you up if you continue in my word, if you obey my commands, and then it delivers the final blow. Now you've done it. What are you going to do now? What's God going to say when God gets home? Well, my friends, with the coming of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, God has come home. So time for a little truth-telling. Have you continued in Christ's word? Loved your neighbor as yourself? Taken up your cross? No? then what are you going to do? What are you going to do now when you find yourself before God and listen as your little sister the law tells of everything you've done or not done? And what's God going to say to you as you stand there amid the shards of your broken promises and violated principles? What's God going to say now, now that you've broken all of God's laws and trespassed against all God's commandments? What is God going to say? Just two words. I forget. Really, just those two words. That's what God is going to say. I forget. 
Here are the words again of the prophet Jeremiah. The time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like that old one, for though they broke my covenant, I was patient with them. I will become their God, and they will become my people. No longer will they need to teach one another to know the Lord, because all of them, high and low alike, will know me, says the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and remember their sin no more. Jeremiah recorded The time is coming. Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, says that time is here. And God will say to us, I will remember your sin no more. I forget. And then, what will we say in response to God's love and forgiveness? What, in fact, do we say? So... Picture for a moment two young men, brothers, playing soccer on a deserted high school field. They begin to argue. Later, they won't even be able to remember what the argument was about. They begin to argue and then push and shove each other around. And finally, the older one shoves the younger one rather violently away and then clenching his fist taunts him and says, go ahead, hit me. Give me an excuse to crush you. The younger one just shakes his head, moving neither closer or further away. The older one, angered even more, repeats his taunt, Come on, take a swing, I dare you. Again, the younger brother just shakes his head from side to side as the older one continues to badger him. Finally, as tears begin flowing out of his eyes, he manages to choke out just one word, No. Enraged at being denied, the older one moves forward and shoves his brother again harder than before. Come on, hit me. The younger brother, tears streaming down his face, says amidst his sobs, No, I will not hit my brother. Come on, the older one says, Do it. No, I will not hit my brother. I will not hit my brother. I cannot hit you, David. I love you. How do we respond to God's offer of love and forgiveness? One would think that the pardoned sinner, like a pardoned criminal, would gratefully and earnestly mend his ways. And one would think that having been confronted by my younger brother's act of love, I would have immediately acknowledged my wrongdoing apologized, tried to make amends, but no. You know, the only thing I acknowledged in the face of my brother's grace was that I had not gotten my way, that my brother had thwarted my will, and so far from making amends, I strode off to our car, bitter and angry, and started driving away, leaving Jim to walk four miles back to our house. But then as I was pulling away, I looked over and I saw him, Carrying the soccer ball tucked in his arm, his head bowed in pain, tears still streaming down his face, and I stopped. Not actually because I wanted to. I stopped because I felt like I couldn't help it. Why? Because his love had finally won me over? No, actually, it was kind of the opposite. Finally, his love had broken my will. It had pierced through my defenses. It had killed that 
all too often arrogant, prideful, and always insecure self, the self that always wants to be in control. And believe you me, that is almost always the way it is. I just don't think you're all that different. I will not hit my brother. I love you. I will remember your sin no more. To the one who's unprepared to admit defeat, you see, unprepared to admit his or her need for forgiveness, even the purest words of grace can give offense and seem a disgrace. And so God must wrest control from us, must indeed kill us by grace, so that also by grace we might be raised to new and better life. The danger, you see, when we start reading the classic Reformation text is to jump right to the good stuff. They are justified by his grace as a gift while skipping over the hard part where Paul writes, all have sinned, all have fallen short, but we do so at tremendous cost because when you ignore the law, it's hard to hear the gospel. When you skip over the pain, it's hard to see the relief that's promised. When we deny our failing and our illness, we risk refusing eternal healing. For the truth of the Son, the truth that makes you free, the truth at the heart of the 95 Theses Luther nailed to that castle door in Wittenberg so long ago, is that we are all sinners. God's fallen, flailing, and confused children, but also God's beloved children from birth to death. Sinners, though, that no amount of indulgences or good works or good intentions can ever redeem. When all is said and done, you see, there really is nothing inherent about Luther or our Lutheran heritage or certainly ourselves for being Lutherans that is worthy of celebration. Because when you stand before the holy God, you realize that we are, to borrow Luther's own words, his last words, that we are always beggars always in need, and yet we are those beggars for whom Christ died. We are those beggars who have been set free by God's love to serve our neighbor, to dare to care for the poor, to give witness to the gospel, to help those around us, to commit ourselves to the mission of this congregation, no matter what the cost for we are finally those justified beggars who, having died with Christ, will also rise with him again to the glory of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And that, at last, is something to celebrate. Thanks be to God. Amen.